I'll have what she's having. Welcome to Our Better Half podcast. It's episode 25 for July 17th, 2016, and our guest will be Dr. Mitchell Tepper. My name is Laura Listermensch. Picture a wedding, just a, you know, an ideal wedding, a typical couple photograph up in front of their friends eating cake. Do you have that in your mind? That picture probably did not include someone who was visibly disabled. You're not thinking of someone with an oxygen tank or needing a cane, are you? You don't think of loving couples holding hands in doctor's offices, or that picking up prescriptions could be as romantic as picking up flowers. But real lifetime. Every year of life adds more scars, wears down more cartilage, and is more likely to include a medical crisis, an accident, or a chronic illness. So love and sex, which do continue through life, often go alongside physical changes, accommodations, pain, and the necessity of caregiving and rehab, and time spent staying as well as possible. This week, I got ill. I got an infection that could have been quite serious, even life-threatening, if not caught early enough. It was caught in time, though, because my husband insisted on cutting short our romantic trip out of town and getting to a doctor. And since then, he has remained very loving and patient as I went from sickly to whiny to petulant to stir-crazy. None of them very sexy attributes. But you know what? Incredibly romantic. Having someone worry over you, protect you, feed you, and be patient through your fragility is some powerful romance. In sickness and in health is no small thing. Interestingly, this episode was already going to be about disability and aging and sex, so getting a little unwell was clearly part of my dedication to my job. You're welcome. I reached out to Dr. Mitchell Tepper, author of Regain That Feeling, Secrets to Sexual Self-Discovery, about people living with spinal cord injuries, and insights into sex, pleasure, relationships, orgasm, and the importance of connectedness. Hello, Dr. Mitchell Tepper, our guest on Our Better Half. How are you today? I'm great. How are you today? Good. So when you were a kid, what did you want to do when you grew up? Oh, I always fantasized heading towards Wall Street. I had a picture of a Porsche on my bedroom wall. I thought when I grew up, I'd buy my dad a Corvette. He never had. So that's that's what I thought I would be doing with my life. How old are you now? I'm 54. Sex, aging, disability. <laughs> Could we find any more topics that people avoid acknowledging to talk about? Oh, I don't think so. Maybe religion. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are these are often taboo topics. You've written a book about sex after spinal cord injury. You were an early adopter of the internet, giving access to sex ed. You have a video series on sex and paralysis. But how did you get into advocacy for disabled people? Well, I tell people I literally dove headfirst into this field. So I was um, working as a lifeguard and I uh, did a water entry and I actually broke my neck uh, diving into the water, mm-hmm. uh, which changed the course of my life. Um, I was in business school at the time, uh, working on a degree in finance, so heading towards my, my dream of Wall Street. Um, I grew up with Crohn's disease, which is like colitis or mm-hmm. inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and I had um, received uh, surgery and then 
ileostomy, which is like a colostomy or a bag on my side. Uh, and that's was like between my junior and senior year of college. And the doctor had said, don't let that get in your way. I said, I want my job back as a lifeguard. And it was on one of my first weekends back when I dove into the water and I put my hand over that bag, uh, to protect it, uh, that I ended up going too deep and, and breaking my neck. Mm. And so from there, you know, as a young man, 20 years old, uh, with a spinal cord injury, which affected directly my sexual functioning, I had a lot of questions. So I'd say my research started in intensive care. People have different reactions to having a life change. What uh, made you an advocate and what made you be an advocate about sex in particular? Well, I think maybe it starts with your, with your upbringing. Um, I remember my father was like a union uh, shop steward, you know? And so I was brought up, I guess, with a, with an attitude of, of action. Uh, I think growing up with a chronic condition gave me very good coping skills. So I had a lot of time to kind of deal, deal with that. So I just, when I, when I didn't get answers, like when I woke up in intensive care and I asked my doctor, you know, what are the chances that I ever have children again? And he said less than 10% and didn't give any more discussion. You know, I was, on a mission, one, to prove him wrong, and two, to find out everything I could. And so, you know, in that process of my own initial exploration and research, uh, you know, I found out that other people wanted this information too. And so I became a source to other people and um, found this to be my my calling versus uh, Wall Street. Has it been fulfilling or do you wish that you'd still gone to Wall Street? Oh no! I mean, I love what I do. Uh, as I, uh, I'm, I'm very passionate. What I would, do, what I do, um, uh, Wall Street. <laughs> um, a lot has happened. I mean, I graduated uh, in business school in 1984, so a lot has happened in banking and Wall Street over the years. And um, now, you know, I, I even when I went back to school after my my degree in business, I, I got a degree in public health from Yale. And I thought I'd move towards managing a, a rehab hospital, um, and so that was was also one of one of my dreams. But the the decision to move on and to pursue a, a life uh, promoting sexual health and sexual health care and rehab has been very rewarding to me. Mm. Did you get a Porsche? Did I get a Porsche? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. That's. I have a, a Chrysler town and country, and every five years I change the color. Um, <laughs> I don't have a lot of choices because I have a, an adapted van uh, with a with a, a a ramp that comes out the side and a certain size wheelchair. So um, there's a particular body type of a minivan that I like. Uh, it's got a lot of cool adaptive equipment, uh, like an electronic hand hand you know accelerator and and brake and it's it's my probably the vehicle you know all, all fixed up is close to ninety thousand dollars so it's it's my Porsche. <laughs> That's a sweet ride. Um, I actually it occurs to me we're about the same age that there was a time when uh, having a van was a pretty sexy thing to have anyway. So oh yeah, definitely in the seventies <laughs> <laughs> having a black van with shag carpet, you oh, know, yeah. a good stereo. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was that was the way to go. So uh, 
sexy as this sexy does. Exactly. In our email correspondence, you mentioned something about a relationship between the experience of aging and disability. Yes. Yeah, I always tell people that acquiring a disability like a spinal cord injury, something that happens quick and and traumatic and that affects all aspects of sexuality, uh, just forces you to deal with the issues of aging, but all at once. So issues of bowel and bladder, um, you know, so I I know continence, especially bladder continence, is is a huge issue for a lot of people. Not even when they get so old, even after childbirth um, for for women, um, uh, but changes in sensation, um, limitations in movement, pain, all of these or orgasmic dysfunctions, problems with ejaculation, all of these issues uh, for women, uh, dryness, uh, are things that could happen secondary to something like a spinal cord injury, or it could happen uh, secondary to different types of surgery secondary to to cancer for for men and women mm-hmm. so so you know these these type of events push you uh into dealing with issues you know a lot a lot sooner than you would naturally through the aging process a lot of the conversation about sex tends to be about safety and about function i noticed that you are have been called a prophet of pleasure Yes, I, I made it a point to to stay away from from those those type of topics. Not that they're not important, but there are many many people and lots of resources dedicated towards STD prevention, HIV prevention, um, sexual trauma prevention, uh, and we generally have a discourse of uh, of danger around sexuality and and, and you know pregnancy prevention. But, you know, I'm focusing on helping people who've either grown up with a disability or who acquire a disability or a chronic condition optimize their sexual pleasure in the context of whatever kind of changes they're dealing with in their body and in their relationships. So there were very few people who were squarely focused on pleasurable aspects of sex. And uh, I thought that's where my special niche should be in and where I'm most suited to to help out. A lot of uh, talk about sex also is about perfect bodies, right? In in function and in appearance. How are you finding the the work to shift public sites on this and how that might help sex positivity in general? I think working with issues around body image and function and and media representations of of, of perfection. I have to work with people first on an individual basis. Mm. And I think when we, and helping people to accept themselves uh, in the context of the change body and, and then change and change function to embrace, you know, the, the positives, to embrace whatever kind of pleasurable sensations and feelings they have. And I think when people find pleasure in themselves and pleasure in relationships, they begin to focus less on the societal expectations of us. And, you know, through other people with disabilities too, um, there's been an increasing representation, at least online and in, you know, in, in documentary films of very varying body types as being sexual. I mean, in the 
I believe his name is Michael Stokes, uh, is a photographer who uh, did a series of, you know, uh, of photographs of, of injured vets uh, and making uh, well, the, the pictures are just hot, <laughs> very sexy pictures of, uh, of injured vets with missing limbs uh, in positions that they pose. And so, unfortunately, in, in the mainstream media, I mean, there was just a movie out, Me Before You, uh, there's still a discourse of it's better to be dead uh, than a head in a bed. You know, uh, it's better to be dead than to be um, paralyzed. You know, and so in in that movie, a young man wants the life he used to have and decides to kill himself. Um, and so, unfortunately, that's a, a pretty common discourse in representations of at least people with spinal cord injuries and, and quadriplegia. But you know we we have to get people to you know see different different images and, and a lot of you know it takes a lot of work to counter you know major movies uh, but there are there, there there are some great movies out there and, and I like to use a lot of media in my in my education and training to expose people to uh, beautiful bodies that are different. Can you think of um, some good examples some um, some examples that made you cheer? I just showed a whole compilation of films. One that just strikes me and it's a wonderful film it's called rust and bone mm. um and it's about a young woman uh who is a trainer uh of of, of whales and she meets a guy who's a, at this point a, a single dad traveling with his son and they they get acquainted and then there's an accident and she loses both legs and the the movie takes you through her adjustment and and his and what's interesting about a lot of these the movies like this is that when you watch them they're so rich uh, a lot of that movie was as much about his ability to be in relationship as as hers mm. so while she's dealing with rehabilitation and coming to terms with her body and her sexuality after losing her legs he's coming to terms with learning how to actually connect with somebody uh, in an intimate way. So really, really interesting film. See, I showed a film, Gabby, which is an older film uh, dealing with a young woman born with cerebral palsy and uh, at a time in, in South America and her family was educated and pushing towards integration in, in her school life and her challenges in, in sexuality. But there's a you know very beautiful erotic scene with her and another young man this is in the teenage years uh with cp um you know with her using her foot and you know him sucking her toe and then sliding down onto the floor and mm. beginning to make make out on the floor it was a very touching very beautiful scene there are more and more movies coming out that have very positive presentations or representations of people with with disabilities or different bodies that's important. What would you say that non and pre-disabled people can learn about sexuality from what you've been able to do in your work? We we call them tabs or temporarily able-bodied people. <laughs> I mean, I think in my sex and paralysis video series, I mean, the tagline is creativity, adaptability, and sense of humor. So I think these are things that I think a lot of people either never you know, master or forget about, you know, people get into a routine, especially in long-term relationships and creativity goes out the door. 
And, um, you know, without creativity, things could get stale and bored. And so I think, you know, number one is we need to use our minds, imaginations, and be be creative in our in our relationships and our partnering and our lovemaking. And then to be adaptable, you know, things change. And to be able to accept change. And one of the hardest things about accepting change, and it comes out in my research, in my book, and although my book uh, is founded on research and people with spinal cord injuries, it's, it's targeted towards towards everybody. And so, you know, one of the first things that, that people said when I interviewed them about their sexuality is it's it's not the same, it's not normal. And so the hardest thing about adapting is letting go of the notions of what's what's normal and what's the same or what's normal for people is what's the same or normal before their accident, before their injury, before their surgery. Now with aging things happen slower. But we we might begin to notice that you know we're not getting uh, you know the erection uh, as as quickly or we need more stimulation or we're not lubricating the same or, or or orgasms aren't as strong so these things may kind of creep up on us more slowly uh, in the in the natural aging process but the ability to to kind of not hang on to the losses and to adapt and to look for ways to you know compensate and to add to anything that's changed is important. And then the sense of humor. I mean, if we can't laugh at ourselves, if we can't laugh at what's happened in our life, we're going to be constantly sad. And so it doesn't necessarily mean making jokes, uh, but being, not taking sex so seriously. Mm. You know, when, when we're working at sex, it doesn't work. You know, and when we, you know, think that this change in function really takes away our our identity as men and women, which is exactly what happens. People feel like less of a man, less of a woman, half a man, half a woman. They feel like their their sexuality is is gutted along with their uterus or their or their prostate. That's just not the case, you know. But we have learned that that's the foundation of of our sexuality is is how we function sexually as men and women. Uh, but there's so much more richness and so much more to sexuality than than what's happening just between the legs. Hmm. Are our healthcare systems supporting sexuality when disability is in the picture? Uh, no, <laughs> we're not doing a very good job. I mean, I started my research when I was a master's at Yale on public health doing a national survey of sex education and counseling and spinal cord injury rehab programs. So I surveyed 500 people around the country and, you know, half of the people didn't receive any sexuality education or counseling and rehab. And the other half that did, half of them said it didn't meet their needs. And that was in, uh, boy, that survey was done in, in, in around 1990. People were about 10 years post-injury. So back in the 80s, when I broke my neck, a hospital stay for me was approximately seven months. Today, we wouldn't get seven weeks. So that's, you know, the, the time period that we have uh, in rehabilitation is shorter. Uh, the amount of education that people with um, in medical schools has not increased. And so the amount of sexual health care in, in, in hospitals, rehabilitation settings uh, really has gone, I think, uh, in the wrong direction over the last 25 years, 30 years that I've been doing this work. You are involved with a really interesting project called Making Love After Making War. Can you tell us about it and where people can get information on it? 
Absolutely. You know, over the last 10 years, a lot of my work has focused on grievously injured, seriously injured uh, combat veterans uh, who are dealing with both psychological issues, whether they be post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury or depression, uh, and physical issues, limb loss, genital injuries, paralysis, um, pain, pain-related issues related to orthopedic issues. Uh, and so they could have one or many uh, disabilities. But I happen to work with the pokes who are greater than 30% totally disabled and have been focusing on helping them uh, reintegrate uh, into their intimate lives. So back in 2006, when I started getting involved, uh, the news was about military suicides and that the majority of them were attributed to quote-unquote failed intimate relationships. So that's when I was at Morehouse School of Medicine working with Dr. David Satcher, and we got involved in that area. We ran a conference called Wounded Troops and Partners Supporting Intimate Relationships. And although I'm not at Morehouse anymore, I continued that work with this project, Making Love After Making War. So over the 10 years, I met people with you know very intense, um, complex injuries who are doing well despite uh, in their relationships. And so I'm seeking to tell their stories in a documentary and creating a companion website uh, to offer the kind of information, uh, support, and access to experts that's not available in the Department of Defense or VA or general health care system. So if people want to learn more about that, I think the easiest thing to remember is to go to loveafterwar.org. So that's L-O-V-E-A-F-T-E-R-W-A-R.org. Uh, read about it. And they could, right now, until uh, they could just click on Contribute, and that right now would take them over to an Indiegogo page where they can donate towards the completion of the documentary and, and learn more. Um, I'm going to suggest that every listener of this podcast go to that uh, page. I've been there, and I think it's really important. Thank you for being on Our Better Half, Dr. Mitchell Tepper. Well, thank you for the opportunity to address your audience. Mm, every week I perseverate on what would make a good sound effect for this week's episode's Kegel Break. This one, it's obvious, a souped-up vehicle. So, old bodies, it is time to get your pelvic floor exercises on. Rev up that sweet ride that you are sitting on. Squeeze and relax what you've got. This is your PT for your pelvic parts. Dr. Rosalind Baculum, our sexy science correspondent. Ooh la la. <laughs> what have you brought for us today? I have brought for you a new story about glow-in-the-dark sex. Nice. So it's summertime, and one of the things that summertime brings is an abundance of fireflies. 
And for me, they always were just really fun to look at and watch. And, and they're a reminder of summer and the, the long days and all these wonderful things. But fireflies, of course, aren't glowing for us. They're glowing for each other. And the glows are, are the firefly equivalent of, you know, a, a profile on Tinder. <laughs> they're a, hey, baby, come and get it. This type of, of glowing is called bioluminescence, and lots of different types of animals do it. It's evolved multiple times um, over the history of life. Now, not all animals who glow use it for sex. Hmm. A lot of marine animals use it as a type of, of camouflage. It sounds pretty weird, glowing to conceal yourself. Usually you'd think that's the opposite of what you'd want to do. But in the ocean, the glow can actually help conceal you because of the light shining down through the water. And so if you glow... Um, you can blend in with the light as opposed to being a dark blob that, that casts a shadow. Ah, it's an invisibility cloak. E exactly. Sort of instead of making you invisible it, it, with, you know, quote-unquote nothing, it, it provides something to help you blend in. Hmm. So what this question gets back to is a facet of evolution called sexual selection. And, you know, you look at the long tails of peacocks. Mm. Um, and, you know, those crazy long feathers on the males, sexual selection. It's what females dig. Females happen to be really into big feathers. So as time went on, male feathers got longer and longer and longer because the males that had the longer feathers attracted more mates and were more likely to pass on those genes. Am I correct in thinking that it's generally the males of a species that do all this showy stuff? It's not exclusive to males, but typically, yes, in, in many species, it is the, the males with these exaggerated traits. Mm -hmm. And so what researchers wanted to know was whether there was a difference in bioluminescence related to mating and bioluminescence for other purposes, such as camouflage, and whether it would, bioluminescence would help create more new species. So what researchers did is they trolled through the scientific literature and found as many examples of, of bioluminescence as they could. And they looked at the number of closely related species that were glowing versus those that weren't. And they found that the animals that glowed for sexual reasons actually had more new species than those that glowed for, for camouflage. In fact, they had nine times more species than those that hadn't been glowing. The study's cool for a number of reasons. One is that it's just glowing animals are cool. How can they not be cool? Um, and another reason is that it really gets to a major question in evolutionary biology, which is the effects of sexual selection in creating new species. And they really found that it, it's a major factor in making more diverse species. And they, they hadn't really been able to show that before. So when you see how those fireflies realize that you're looking at a highly diverse group of insects, and it's all thanks to glow-in-the-dark sex. <laughs> they're turned on when they're turned on. I like it. Exactly. Sex with the lights on. It's good for you. <laughs>
I knew there was a joke coming here somewhere. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So we will have links to this research in the show notes. And I thank you very much. You are most welcome. Translator Marina Maklos will explain that to a grandma. I don't know what compersion means. Hey, grandma. Compersion is a really interesting word, and it basically means taking pleasure from your partner having another relationship. And so it's it's the opposite of jealousy. And I think this is a really interesting term because for people that prefer monogamy, and relationships with one person, there's this idea that if your partner had a connection with someone else, it would automatically cause jealousy, and that's just a natural reaction. But this term indicates that for some people, it actually gives them a lot of pleasure when their partner has another emotional and sexual relationship. It it gives them joy. And so I definitely think that for people that prefer polyamory and swinging and and multiple relationships, they get compersion out of that and are not as jealous. Now, it does seem like jealousy and compersion are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes it can happen that you have both. And those are the complications that can sometimes come up if you are in multiple relationships. It's really a neat term. Now I have some news for you in case you missed it from the world of sex. Do you have busy days? Consider the chalk bass. Serenus torgagarum can switch genders several times a day. This allows them to mate and fertilize their partner, who can then very fairly fertilize them back. Isn't that sweet? This improves their reproductive success, being both mommy and daddy. And since they are largely monogamous, this keeps it all in the family. And picture this. The chalk bass are unusually affectionate and attached to their partner and their school. They stick together as groups, and if they leave, they do so with their partner. Fun fact. Although they're paired up monogamously, their confitio bliss is, quote, often, unquote, interrupted by some devilish male fish who try to separate them. These spoilers are called streakers. (laughs) I love science. You are old. I am old. So your hair probably doesn't go on fire when you hear the name Pokemon Go. Or maybe it does, and kudos for that. But for those geezers who were not raising a child in the era of Squirtle and Pikachu and aren't engaged in the international phenomena of the game Pokemon Go, here is what you need to know. All over the world, people are simultaneously living in the world you see and the one of Pokemon Go. And the map of the world, or game, of Pokemon Go is your map, plus. So real places and real people are part of the game, but there are beings and events going on around you that you can't see. At the park, among the joggers and the tai chiers around you, and in coffee shops, and notably including 
a sex shop in England called The Private Shop, which the Pokemon game identifies as a gym. It's kind of nice to think of the colorful cartoon characters of the Pokemon game surrounded by colorful dildos and pretty condoms, but since the owner of the store wasn't himself in on the game, he was a bit bewildered by the sudden popularity of his shop and the play that he was attracting. As Netflix and Chill gives way to Pokemon Go and Blow. It's good to be queen. Other grandmothers may be fair game for teasing about your sex life at the age of 90, but by golly, no one gets to do that about the Queen of England. BBC Radio 4 got spanked, for references, to Elizabeth's bedroom behavior on her 90th birthday, no less, and apologies were made. So any of you who even think about thinking of the Queen in bed better be thinking about corgis and sensible shoes or heads may roll. While we are mentally in England, a note on sex ed programs for young people. It has been pointed out that the UK government guidance on school sex ed is older than the kids they are teaching it to. Sex hasn't changed that much since these kids were born, but 16 years ago there was little social media, no smartphones, same-sex marriage, and the technology of safer sex and pregnancy prevention have all changed. So good guide. Information that is older than you may not be taken seriously and probably should not be. The most striking change for her is that she develops breasts. She may get a leg pulled about it too, but that won't last long. And she'll find that a well-developed bosom becomes part of her charm. Sex sells, right? How would we choose a new car without associating it with a young woman to demonstrate how much it turns her on? So I don't know what's gone wrong with young folk, but I have been reading about how the product most associated with sex sells is, quote, ditching sex, unquote. Perfume. Modern perfumeries say that the younger generations are not buying scents for the same reasons or associations. With more unisex scents, the messages are more about confidence, luxury, and lifestyle. Even Axe products, which are marketed to teen boys, have backed off the promise of crazed classmates following them down the hall, Next thing you know, they'll be using perfume to sell sex. Chanel, number five. It amuses me, but does not surprise me, nor should it you, that the person who figured out the X and Y chromosomes wasn't given credit for it because she didn't have a Y chromosome. Nettie Stevens was a prolific scientist in her final decade, packing 40 papers into the years between getting her PhD and dying of breast cancer in 1912. She lived in an era where brilliant women were invisible. We live in an era when being awarded a Google Doodle, which Stevens did this month, is one of the greatest honors. Happy 155th Nettie. A small boy knows well enough that he has something else. First, a small convenient tube. Very useful when nature's demands are urgent. Also, he knows he has a little sack containing heaven knows what. He almost certainly doesn't know that the tube is called a penis and that the small egg-shaped objects in the sac are called testicles. Nor does he know that these parts of his body may one day contribute greatly to his happiness as a man or maybe the source of much unhappiness if he fails to grow up to his responsibilities as a man. The little girl is similarly aware of her body and knows that down there between her legs is a sort of cleft 
which is to do with getting rid of waste material. But it isn't likely that she'll know yet that inside, down there, is already the equipment which will provide her with what will probably be her greatest joy in life, babies. Visit the OurBetterHalf.net website for all of the links discussed here and for pictures of the guests, as well as as many visual puns that I can fit into a webpage. I hope to see as many of you as possible at the Woodhall Sexual Freedom Summit in Alexandria, Virginia, August 4th. One event I've been invited to, the dress code is PJs. I'm really not sure that my flannels are going to fit in, but we'll see. A shout out to the Huffington Post for publishing my essay about raceless, genderless life adapted from episode 24th's intro. If you go like or share that piece, the HuffPo might promote it to their main page, which is an important way to spread the word. Takes a second or two, and I'm grateful for all of your seconds. Dear listeners, you tickle me. It cracks me up to know that all over the world, lots of very regular folks are on the road commuting or jogging away on their treadmill with my voice right there in their ear saying, old people have lovely orgasms this week. You're worth it. Hey, this is Dan Savage from the Savage Lovecast and Savage Love, and you're listening to a Swing Set podcast at Swing Set FM. 